Jesus accomplished everything, so we might ought to take our big Gatorades and dump them on him when we get there. So maybe we could all be buried with Gatorade bottles, so we'll be ready. I have great admiration for Super Bowl Sunday for many reasons. One, because I'm a sports fan and I love football. Uh, But a fascinating thing that happens in regards to the Super Bowl that I want to help you cue into and then even ask you to even pray about today. Uh, 1998, 1999, two of the better years of my life, uh, my Denver Broncos won the Super Bowls both of those years. An interesting thing happened after the 99 Super Bowl. Uh, Left tackle Matt Lepsis, who was our left tackle for both Super Bowl wins, began to ask a question of some of the guys on the team. This is a question he posed to our then kicker, Jason Elam. Is this all that there is? See, when you win a Super Bowl, that's awesome. You win two Super Bowls, you go, wait, really, this is, this is it? And, and, Matt, and that started John, or Matt Lepsis on a long journey to not only find Christ, but I'd laughingly tell you that Matt Lepsis is preaching in a church in Texas right now because he gave his life to Christ, went to seminary, and God changed his life. One of the unique things about the Super Bowl is it takes men to the highest level, the highest experience, and when they realize how shallow it is, they find Jesus. That helps us to get to where we're going this morning, because Jesus is our all. He's the thing we're called to look at. This morning we are continuing on in our series in the book of Colossians. A letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. And I would remind you that Paul never went to Colossae and he never met the Colossians. But rather he heard about them through his friend Epaphras, whom he discipled and no doubt commissioned then Epaphras to pastor the church at Colossae. Now I've shared that with you several times. Because in sharing that, what I'm trying to help us see is, and to normalize is this idea that that's how the gospel spreads. When people tell people about Jesus, and ultimately in the New Testament, that's how churches got started. Because people told people about Jesus and then helped them grow in their faith. They discipled them, they commissioned them, and sent them out. And that was a normal thing in the early church, and it's still a normal thing now. We just need to have that model before us. We need to restore the model. And so in this letter, Paul writes to the Colossians to help Epaphras disciple this church, to help them mature in their faith and to help them stay true to the gospel. We'll step into that more this morning. You might remember that this letter starts by Paul praying for them, that they would live not an informed life, that as Steve pointed out, their goal of the gospel is not that we would get smarter, or that we'd become more learned, but that we would lead a transformed life. That's Paul's prayer in the beginning. That our lives would bear fruit, that we would grow in knowledge, that we'd be strengthened in endurance and patience, and finally, that we would give thanks. This morning, Paul is going to lean into that again, giving us a similar charge, this time not in prayer form. My voice is coming in and out. I'm just going to keep mowing through it, and you fix it. I got two mics. One of them will work, and if not, I'll get loud. Paul gives us a similar charge this morning, this time not praying for us, but actually calling us to that which he prayed for us. It's a good model. And so when Paul finally finishes praying, he gives us a huge and accurate picture of Jesus 
starting in Colossians 1.15. I'm going to read it again for us because it's helpful for us to have a picture of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, never move past this picture of Jesus. In fact, I would call you to dig into this passage, to go deep into this passage, to see who the biblical Jesus was. That he was completely sovereign. That he was the creator. That he's the sustainer. That he is the reconciler. It's this accurate picture of Jesus that is at the heart of the gospel. It's this accurate picture of Jesus It tells us who he is. And so then Paul moves to describe who we are, the very opposite of God, that we were alienated, hostile, doers of evil. That's how the Bible describes us before we came to know him. And that's the other side of the gospel. That on one hand, you have a sovereign and all-sufficient Savior. And on the other hand, a sinful and needy people who are in need of something. And so Paul writes in Colossians 1.22 that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What Jesus did is he reconciled our sin. He forgave us our sin, not according to our efforts, but based on his death. And because he dies in our place, because he takes our punishment He takes our sin, we in turn receive his righteousness. It's the most unfair trade ever made. And from that point on, we are viewed as holy and blameless and above reproach according to the gospel. That is salvation, that Jesus stood in our place and he took it. And so as Paul continues to write and puts before us what it means to have so great a salvation, Paul tells us then what to expect. And it sure isn't your best life now. It sure isn't all the promises that the world would have for us. It isn't health. It isn't wealth. It isn't prosperity. No, the next thing Paul walks us into immediately is suffering, which we addressed last week. For it is in suffering that the body of Christ best displays the sufficiency of Jesus. It's in suffering that we put out who Jesus is to the world. Not in our health, not in our wealth, not in our achievements. It's when we suffer and when we struggle that not only do we find that Jesus is enough, but the world sees it too. I've alluded to it a couple of times. I can't remember if I've actually said it in a sermon. But I came across a quote in preparation for this series that said, if dependency on Jesus is our goal, then weakness is our greatest ally. If dependency on Jesus is our goal, then suffering is our ally. Anything that could help us 
find ourselves more complete in Christ, to realize his sufficiency would be helpful. And so Paul turns now in chapter 2 to exhort the Colossians to the very thing that he prayed for them in chapter 1. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 2, 6. (coughs) Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The word therefore is always a transitionatory word. When I was in seminary, Howard Hendricks used to say, whenever you see a therefore, you should always ask why it's therefore. A little catchy little thing, you can always keep that in your pocket. But what Paul is saying here is in light of the complete sufficiency of Jesus, in light of his complete sufficiency being shown through our trials, through our struggles, that just as you heard about Jesus, now it's not telling you just as you believed in him, he's actually literally saying just as you were instructed in him, in the teachings that you received about Jesus, walk it out. Walk in him. Paul would not have a category for someone who called themselves a Christian and yet did not actively pursue obedience. Paul had a category for those who followed Jesus, claimed his name, and sought to obey him. That was the only category in early Christianity that existed. So he's telling you here plainly, just as you learned about Jesus, keep practicing it. And then he uses a very intentional phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord, a phrase that is used nowhere else in all of Scripture. Paul comes up with this phrase intentionally to tell you that this Jesus that you have been instructed about This Jesus who's pushing back on the creeping false teachings. So this is what he says. Christ Jesus the Lord, calling him Christ, Paul is asserting his deity, which the Jews were denying. He calls him Jesus, asserting his humanity, which the Docetists were denying. And he's calling him Lord, which to be fair, nearly everyone wants to deny. Because if he indeed is sovereign, then we have to submit to him. So again, a large reason Paul is writing this letter is because of false teaching. And the people who knew Christ rightly, wandering into all kinds of false belief. Paul is shepherding his body, he's discipling his body. So what Paul says to them is, as you know him as God, as you know him as human, as you know him as the Lord, the sovereign one who rules everything, so walk in him. Live it out. And he gives us the four characteristics of the walk. You would remember them um, from chapter 1. He says we're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul says walk in him because you're rooted like a tree. It would remind you of Psalm 1, that we would be planted by streams of living water. Paul says that we are to be built up like a building. That brick after brick, we are to lay a foundation. And that we are to be established. That we are to be a stable people, ever increasing in our stability. So that we are not tossed by the winds. And that we are to abound in giving thanks. That we would grow in our ability to give thanks in everything that might come before us. That God would be glorified. So Paul, having prayed that we would live out our faith, now exhorts us to do it. In some very familiar ways. And here's why. And here's the thrust of our sermon. Verse 8. See to it. 
that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the thrust of the book in a lot of ways, summed up in this verse. See to it that no one takes you captive. Friends, I cannot tell you the number of friends I've seen in my life walk away from Christ. But before, we dig into the, but before we dig into that, let's look at the verse a little bit more. Because what Paul is warning us here is to not be held captive, to not stare at, to not be kidnapped by, and he gives you four options. Philosophy, hum, empty deceit, human tradition, or the elemental spirits of the world, as opposed to Jesus. Paul says there are four things that you could be captivated by, four things that will steer you away from Jesus. And we have to look at it and ask ourselves, is Jesus the thing that I have my eye on? Is Jesus the thing that I'm captivated by in life? Because if he isn't, if I'm not fixated on Jesus, if I'm not enthralled by Jesus, then I'm putting myself in a good spot to fall away from him. I'm putting myself in a good spot to wander away. Because here Paul warns that if you find philosophy, deceit, tradition, or elemental spirits of the world, that you're going to find them enthralling and that you will walk away. And just for the record, for simplicity, let's call that last one sin, because I think that's what Paul is alluding to. Philosophy, deceit, tradition, and sin. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with philosophy. In fact, I studied some of it in college. I know people who graduated with degrees in it. It's not inherently wrong. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with a number of things on that list. But I think they can be used wrong. I think it matters on how you fixate on it. For seven years, I worked with college students, millennials, if you will. And I can't t tell you the number of students that I met with over the years. And during that time, I, ca I can't name one that ever got argued out of their faith. I can't come up with a single one that sat down with somebody else who said, that is a valid reason I don't believe in Jesus. But I can point you to a lot of them who got their lunch eaten by philosophy. A lot of students who sat down, started studying something, and started leaning further into the questions than they leaned into Jesus. And slowly their faith began to erode. And again, I don't think Paul here is condemning philosophy. I think if, when it becomes more captivating to you than Christ, it becomes dangerous. And I can think of several that bought into the ridiculous lies and the deceit of the world. Kids who were wandering and, and walking in life, hoping for all sorts of things, who started believing lies and embracing lies that were much more comfortable than Christ. They stopped finding him captivating. And for human tradition... It was the arguments that always start with, but I know someone. I know someone who struggles with this. Or I know someone who is that. Or I know someone who's in this place. I don't see how God would want that to happen to them. I don't see how God would. And we can find all sorts of ways to start to ridicule God or a perspective of God or an ethic from God without actually looking at him. See, Christ is our focus. Christ is the thing we're called to look at. 
Or the last one, sin, flat out. If you don't want to pursue Jesus, or rather, if you want to pursue Jesus and simultaneously pursue sexual immorality, I watch this happen a lot. It doesn't take too long before you realize that you have to pick one. And I watch that with college guys over and over again, that this idea that I want Jesus and I want to sleep with my girlfriend. And it didn't take too long before we gave up Jesus and kept with a girlfriend that we needed to have nothing to do with. See, what Paul is doing here is he's putting before us all the traps, telling us that we need to be captivated by Jesus. In fact, it's one of the underlying themes throughout the book of Hebrews. Let me give it to you. Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have learned, lest we drift away from it. What the author in Hebrews says is, if you don't want to drift away, pay attention. In fact, pay close, close attention. This is the first imperative of the book of Hebrews, and it'll come back to it like eight times. Pay attention to Jesus so that you don't drift away. The author would go on to write in Hebrews 12 too, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Make him your focus. Make him your hope. Make him the thing you long for. Be captivated by him. I played high school and a little bit of college football. When I was in high school, we used to have three days, which means we practiced three times a day. And 100 degree weather that's since then been outlawed um i remember it would get so hot you would just stand around steaming i don't know how i don't remember how i endured all of it but i'll tell you this funny tidbit i used to have this little image in my mind that i would think about whether we were running or doing drills or sitting around this is what got me through it i used to imagine that i would sit in a pool eating ice cream that was like my hope in that moment I'm just going to float on a little raft and eat some ice cream. Everything about it seemed cold to me. Just floating and eating ice cream. If we were running gassers, I was thinking about the pool and ice cream. If we were scrimmaging, I was thinking about the pool and ice cream. If I was puking, and we puked a lot back then, I was thinking about the pool and the ice cream. You get the idea. The irony of that is I don't think I ever sat in a pool and ate ice cream. But even still, there are times in my life when I'm physically exerted and the, mind, the, the thought comes back to me of pool and ice cream. And here's the irony of it. I think I would have felt cool for a moment, but it certainly wouldn't have helped me much for just a fleeting moment until my bowl of ice cream was gone, and then I probably would have felt sick floating in the water. But that's beside the point. This is what Paul and the author of Hebrews is pointing us to, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would focus on him, that Jesus would become our desire. It has often been said in football, this being Super Bowl Sunday, that one of the best defenses you can have is a really good offense. That in football, if you can keep your offense on the field for a long time, you can wear out their defense well. The whole theory then is, is if you stay on the attack, 
then you'll never fall on the defense. If you stay forward, you'll never fall back. Fall back. I think that's the thrust of this passage is if we make Jesus our aim, if we make Jesus our goal, if we pursue him, then that keeps us from falling away. That's the thrust as Paul is writing to these Colossians. Keep pursuing Jesus if you don't want to fall away. Keep pursuing Jesus if you don't want to fall away. Keep pursuing Jesus. And you won't give in to philosophy. You won't give in to deceit. You won't give in to hopelessness. You won't give in to fear. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. And in verse 9, Paul increases and continues to paint a big brushstroke of Jesus begging you to be captivated. In verse 9 he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See the words there. You have been filled. You will have the whole fullness. Paul, Paul points this picture to us of a completeness of filling that can only be found in Christ and will not be found in the world or its offerings. What Paul is doing here is he's polemically challenging the Colossians. If you're not familiar with the word polemics, it's the aggressive attack of something. Polemics is the offense if apologetics is the defense. He's making a forward argument here. He's asserting his faith, putting before them that the philosophy will be empty. Deceit is empty. Traditions are empty. Sin is empty. And Jesus is full. Paul says the fullness of God dwelling in the fullness of humanity. And that this may not be your theological issue. This may not be the thing that will drive you away. But it is the answer. Because it was the issue for the Colossians. They didn't buy into the fullness of Jesus. And for us, when we start walking into sin, that can be our struggle too. That we don't believe in a full, complete picture of Jesus. That we don't see him as he is in the scripture. That we paint a picture that's way more palatable to us. Because we can get away with things. We paint a weak picture of Jesus that can't save us from anything. Rather than a biblical picture of Jesus where he's our reconciler, our rescuer, our sustainer. Paul calls us here to see a picture of the fullness of Jesus, to see our filling by Jesus, and to fix our eyes on Jesus, that that will always be our best defense, pursuing Jesus, because he's the only thing that can fill and then Paul continues on with some polemic arguments, which we'll work quickly through. In verse 11, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What Paul begins to argue here is, and you can see the influence of Judaism creeping in, and he uses as an illustration the Old Testament sign of circumcision a topic I know many of you always look forward to coming up in church. But what Paul says here, talking about circumcision, is that it was an outward sign of those who were committed to following God. It was an outward thing that happened once, suggesting that you would be faithful to God, and that was it. 
it then had to be carried on by successive uh, sacrifices in order to continue to maintain your faith. And that was it. And what Paul says here is in Christ Jesus, in the fullness of Christ, not in the picture of Judaism given here that they're trying to oppress people with, but in the fullness of Christ that we've received a more complete circumcision, not cutting off part of our flesh per se for an external effect, but by removing all of our flesh, changing our hearts from the inside out. God doesn't just change our outside. He's not asking us for behavioral modification, which is most people's view of sin. He's asking us to recognize that God has changed us from the inside, that he has killed our flesh. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Note what he writes. Those who belong to Christ, if you are a Christ follower, if you follow Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, you have crucified the flesh. That is, you have put your sin under Jesus who died on the cross to take away our sin. Will we struggle? Absolutely, in every day. Do we make it a lifestyle? Never. That's Christianity. That we are no longer a slave to sin. That we have crucified our flesh, crucified our passions, crucified our desires. And then he gives you the New Testament sign of being identified with Jesus. Having been buried with him in baptism. Which if you didn't know, that's the very picture of baptism. That's why you go underwater. It's that sign of you standing there in a tub or in a river or in a pool or in a lake or in a puddle, however it looks. But being identified with Jesus by being put under the water, so symbolizing your death and being brought up new and fresh in Jesus. That's the symbolism of baptism. That's why it's the New Testament sign of covenant faithfulness that you are committing yourself to christ you're identifying in his death and in his resurrection paul says in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead and he continues and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul writes through this whole passage, everything that he's been building for us in Colossians leads us to this passage. That Jesus is big and he's huge. And he's sovereign and he's in control. And he created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. If you'll let me say that from Psalms, using John 1 to tell you he was the one that created you anyway. And when he did it, he didn't make a mistake, not even a little one. He built you absolutely purposefully the way you are. 
knowing full well that he would have to redeem you, he'd have to reconcile you, that you would fall short, because all of us do. And he died on the cross, taking our place, because our sin deserved punishment, and instead of us taking it, he took it in our place. This is a huge, grandiose picture of Jesus stepping in on our behalf. And what Paul is putting before us is if we keep our eyes on the complete sufficiency of Jesus, that at his death, that it was sufficient for all of my need, that his death paid the price for everything I've ever done wrong, thought, or planned of, that paid all of it, and that it's not on me to behaviorally modify my life to try to look right. And it's not on me to try to do these four things as if God would look on me more favorably. See, those are the philosophies and the empty deceits and the lies that we buy into that start leading us astray. But we lean into the gospel and this picture of a complete and sovereign Jesus. We look at him. We fix our eyes upon him and on his completed work of the cross. And that's what carries our faith. That's what Paul is encouraging these Colossians to do. To look at Jesus in his completeness. And we won't fall away. I'll close by telling you, sharing with you a verse from 2 Corinthians that has become more and more one of my favorites. I do so because throughout the New Testament there's this call for us to continuously look to Jesus to find our hope in Jesus, to find salvation in Jesus, in Christ alone, over and over again. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with an unveiled face, a reference to Moses in the previous the context, but we won't dive into that, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul writes to the Corinthians here is as you look at Jesus, watch that. We behold the glory of the Lord. Paul says, look at Jesus. And then note your verb here is a passive verb. That we are being transformed. It doesn't say by human effort. It doesn't say, and behold God and try really hard. It doesn't say, behold God and white knuckle your face. It says, behold God, look at Jesus, and you will be transformed from one image and from one degree of glory to another, that Jesus will sanctify you, that your life will come into congruence with his as you look at him. Friends, the best defense is a good offense. Pursue Jesus. Look at Jesus, meet with Jesus, and you will not fall away. That's Paul's argument here. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for Jesus, that he is incredibly, and that is such an understatement, sufficient, that his grace is more than enough for my need. Father, that though I am a sinner and I have sinned abundantly, my sins, they are many, but your mercies are more. 
Thank you for your abundant grace. Father, I pray for me and I pray for all of those of us gathered together in this year church. Father, that we would have a huge picture of Jesus and not a muted one. That we would lean into who he was in its fullness. To see the fullness of Jesus. To understand that this great, huge, incredible, powerful God lowered himself and became man. Lowered himself and submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. That when I understand that and I focus on that and I consider who God was and what he did for me. Father, how that bolsters my faith. How that encourages my faith. And how it protects my faith from falling away to all the empty philosophies and desires of this world. How it protects my faith from falling into dumb and silly arguments. And how the right picture of Jesus carries me on better than any ice cream ever could. Father, may we as a people individually and may we as a church just focus on your son who gave us salvation. May we turn our eyes to him and find our hope. He's the one that sustains us in all things, even when we suffer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.